This episode was recorded during the 2023 WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes. Without the labor of writers and actors, this film wouldn't exist. We stand in solidarity with those striking. Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. And we are back to celebrate Halloween in August, because why not? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's Halloween in August. It's fine. I'm dreaming of Halloween weather. Yes, it is post-Equinox, so I'm going to say that it is fully appropriate for Halloween time already. Yeah. Anything after the summer Equinox is prime time for Halloween, so that's my excuse. Yeah. I'm sick into it. I am too. Yeah. Knowing that we were going to watch this movie today, I was like, oh, good, because we were both out in like 90 degree weather yesterday, and I was like, I need something that's giving me like chilly fall vibes yeah they're all wearing like sweaters and flannels and i'm like i'm ready for that yeah i was wearing a tank top yesterday and i sweat buckets yeah sweating like a pig yeah it's terrible it was the worst oh you know what though i keep thinking like oh man this is the hottest summer ever it's actually the coldest summer of the rest of our lives (laughs) (laughs) Just to bum you out a little bit yeah. before we talk about this. Yeah. Because you well, can't have your cake and eat it, too. It's true. It's true. <laughs> and this is such a joyful, happy movie. Yes. At least for horror fans, for us, it's a joyful, happy movie. So let's start out on a bummer note. And then it's only up from there. <laughs> yes, exactly. We, that's all that we have to go is up. Yeah. So that's exciting. Which one are we talking about today? <laughs> today we are talking about The Barn, uh, the 2016 film. There are a couple of horror films called The Barn, including one that came out in 2018. So we are specifically talking about 2016's The Barn, which was written and directed by Justin M. Seaman and is from Scream Team releasing. Yeah, don't watch the 2018 Barn, The don't Barn movie. Barn. Yeah, the 2018 one is really, really bad. I saw it. It was very, very bad. Sometimes I feel like the reviews might be mixed up that people watch the 2018 barn. That is such a rough situation because obviously like Justin wrote this movie in 2016 or the movie was released in 2016. He doesn't really have any control of anybody who makes a shittier movie with the same name afterwards. But unfortunately, it's to his detriment because that movie is very 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 bad and has to do with aliens so it has nothing to do with this movie oh, not even yeah. close yeah this movie has no aliens unfortunately no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no it doesn't have aliens but it does have demon hell spawn so yeah. that's pretty cool yeah at least it's well designed demon hell spawn too yeah and you know evil preachers halloween legends and myths so if you're jonesing for halloween stuff like we are at this point in time, then this is the movie for you. And you can, it's actually pretty accessible. They have it on Tubi and they have it on Roku too, on the Roku channel. So if you don't have the ability to get a DVD right at your fingertips, then you can watch it on streaming. But you could also buy the DVD. I think it's on Amazon still. Yeah. And uh, Scream Team Releasing has their own website and they put out a lot of indie horror 
and really like good quality indie horror. I've watched several of their films and I've liked all of them. Yeah. I mean, this was a great release. And the one that we watched is actually, it was crowdfunded. So mm-hmm. we, Juliet and her partner crowdfunded the movie. So we were able to watch her copy of it. But at the same token, like you can still buy the movie. Like yes. it was crowdfunded to have the movie finished, but you can still buy the movie now so yeah this is not one of those exclusive you can only get it on physical media if you crowdfund it which i have like super mixed feelings about Agreed. crowdfunding as pre-ordering is i get why it happens but it's not the best scenario but this is not that case uh they did a special edition with i believe an exclusive introduction by linnea quigley who's in the movie all hail mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> but they've subsequently put it out on dvd and blu-ray and they are also at a lot of conventions right. uh, especially in kind of the general Midwest, we see them at Horror Hound a lot, and uh, you can often see them at a table at your nearby horror convention. So if you're there, look for them and buy stuff from them. They always have the props too, some of the props yes. from the movies that they bring with. So super accessible, very nice. I remember the last time we tabled with you guys at Horror Hound, they were like right around the corner. Yeah. They're really cool. That's how we that's how I ended up buying my copy, I think, is right at the convention. So if you're able to travel to your nearest horror convention, keep an eye out for the table. By now they have The Barn, The Barn 2. They've yes. made a sequel. And they also have a movie called 1031. Uh-huh. And then there's another movie that I was telling Juliet about called Cryptids, which yeah. I definitely want to get my hands on because the premise seems very relevant to Juliet and I's existence. So... They have multiple movies out at this point. Yeah, and I will just shout out another one. Scream Team has one called Close Calls that's also very fun. Oh, nice. Yeah. The big theme today is going to be support independent horror. Yes, that's going to be like the main driving theme of this episode because this is an independent horror film. Mm -hmm. Really small, low budget. Reported budget on this movie was 80000 I didn't look at the Indiegogo or whatever crowdfunding platform they used to see how much they requested, but you can tell this movie is lower budget. But having said that, it has a ton of heart. It's a lot of fun. It's set in the 80s. There's sort of this like legend that, you know, we start out with legend of these demons that, you know, will mess up your Halloween, basically. And then we flash forward 30 years to these kids who are like, we need to go see this rock concert that's hosted by Dr. Rock, <laughs> played by Ari Lehman. Um, I love Dr. Rock. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Rock's the best. But this group of kids, they have to, you know, take this trek on Halloween to try and go see this band that they really, really love. And they get waylaid by the barn. And chaos ensues, pretty much. Yeah. So it's a lot of fun. There's not a whole lot more to it than that. It's a very straightforward 80s throwback style plot. There's not a lot of subtext there, but it's tons of fun. It has a lot of heart. I know I keep saying it has heart, but you can really tell that the folks in this movie have a serious appreciation for 80s horror, for Halloween, for continuing those traditions. In terms of the plot of the movie, I think it hit all of the main points. In terms of our major players, we have Mitchell Mussolino, who plays Sam. He's kind of our main hero or a half of the pair of main heroes. Will Stout, who plays Josh. Lexi Drips, who plays Michelle. 
Cortland Woodard, who plays Chris, and then Nikki Howell, who plays Nikki. And then special shout out to Linnea Quigley, who plays Miss Barnhart, and Ari Lehman, who plays Dr. Rock. And Ari Lehman is famous for portraying Jason Voorhees in the original Friday the 13th movie as a child. Yeah, I did want to say really quick, I feel like it's so underappreciated, but Linnea Quigley's willingness to participate in low budget like horror movies or horror movies that her friends are doing I just can't overstate the fact that she really really loves the genre yeah and she recently was in a movie that a friend of ours directed produced wrote did literally everything and we actually were in for a a very short period of time we were extras that was fun but she was in this movie. It's our friend Victor Bonacore. He made this movie called Thrust and Linnea Quigley was in it and she played a pretty big role in it. And she's just the sweetest person. They're friends. Like, yeah, randomly. They're totally friends. And I don't know. I just every time I see her in a movie, especially one like a recent movie, I'm always like, oh, my God, it's so cute. Yeah, she's wonderful. And the story with her in this film is that she was originally supposed to be in it and then scheduling didn't work. So she was out and then she saw, I think it was a trailer for it and basically told her management, like, we have to figure out how to make this work, you know, because she was just like, this is cool. I want to be a part of this project. And she has really gone to bat for this film and has really advocated to her fans, like, go watch this movie, support this movie. And I love that about her, that she really actively participates in the genre. Like, she doesn't just, you know, do these, you know, parts in these indie films and just calls it a day. Like, she... From what I can tell, from what we've heard from other folks, is invested and really participates and understands that she's got a fan base who is a genre fan base. And so she tends to advocate for the movies that she's in. And I think that's really, really cool. Yeah, I liken it to Jamie Lee Curtis. I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis has been really outspoken, like, hey, if horror fans didn't become obsessed with Halloween, I would never have had a career. Yeah, she said that in her Oscar speech. Yeah, which I absolutely love because she did not win an Oscar for Halloween. No. (laughs) She won an Oscar for Everything Everywhere All at Once, which once again, plugging that, if you haven't seen it, please go watch it. Yes. It's amazing. I still haven't watched it again. I don't know if I'm emotionally ready. Yeah, same. (laughs) I keep thinking about maybe watching it again, but I don't know that I'm fully prepared for that experience. I need to be comfortable, completely alone, and have nothing else on my plate that day. Yeah, same. (laughs) I mean, Linnea Quigley, 100% is a scream queen. She's been in so many 80s movies, like really, real big cult classics, Return of the Living Dead, Night of the Demons. Those are just two off the top of my head. And that's not certainly not an exhaustive list. But to see her continuing, because this isn't even her main thing anymore. She doesn't act as much anymore. She actually has a dog rescue now. So that's like her main gig. But she still goes out and she still acts in these films. I know that she's been to several premieres for Thrust, I know, with Victor. And I'm just consistently amazed that somebody can still make such a big part of their life revolve around horror, even though they're not, you know, making bank from that. Yeah. And you can tell because the budget for this movie was $80,000. How much money did she make out of the $80,000? Probably not much, if anything. Yeah. Same with Thrust. Thrust is a very low-budget independent movie. Probably not a lot of money went to her either, but she still is standing up for it and speaking out about it, and I love that. Yeah, same. Speaking of Linnea Quigley, 
I just wanted to mention that there is an egregious boob shot in this movie. <laughs> um, there is. I just, I mean, segue because Linnea Quigley showed her boobs in like so many movies yeah. in the 80s, <laughs> which God bless. God bless yes. her. But this movie, it is set specifically in 1989. It's set on October 30th and October 31st of 1989. That's our main kind of setting. So when you watch this movie, just keep that in mind that you're going to see some stuff that looks kind of outdated. There's some grain on the film, you know, on purpose. The kids are kind of goofy. They're listening to a Walkman, you know. There's a lot of like throwback stuff. And one of the other cool things in this movie that uh, you don't see very often is a rock host on their like public access TV. Yeah. Which is hilarious. Dr. Rock is played by Ari Lehman. And I just think that it was the funniest thing. And I actually got into a discussion with Juliet about this because she knows a lot more about public access TV here than I do. And I was like, did we have a you know, a a local kind of rock host at night. And she told me that, in fact, we did. We had several. Yeah. Back in the day on public access here, we had the ones that I know of. I'm sure there were more. There was a show called Metal Mania that was like really, really popular. People still talk about it today. There was Mr. Industrial Pants. There was Trip Like I Do. There was a show called Eat More Carp that incorporated like music videos and political clips and all sorts of things like Public access back in the day, and I know it's still this way in some places, used to be like the coolest, most fruitful ground. It was kind of like, if you think of the way that YouTube, I think still can be, but like YouTube before everybody became like an influencer and everything started to kind of look the same when it was in its infancy and it was all about like creative people doing weird things and kind of stretching the ability of the medium, public access was definitely that way back in the day. And we had some really cool, cool stuff around here. And we still do have some. It's just that a lot of the people that I think would have been the next obvious generation of like young creators have since moved online. Yeah. I mean, public access was like people's first foray into using professional equipment. Yep. You know, you would have the ability to use and somewhat abuse like legit cameras, legit lighting, green screens, things like that. And now we take that for granted because we're like, well, we have a super powerful camera in our phone. Why would I need, you know, a television camera? There are reasons, folks, those television cameras are super expensive and gigantic for a reason. Yeah. And your iPhone can't exactly recreate that. Although I will say like some of the equipment at certain, you know, like depending on your funding, they're going to be out of date or whatever. But there's been this whole generation of folks who are like, oh, well, I'll just use my iPhone rather than getting the kind of experience and also learning that you would get at a public access station. It was also people's first opportunity to get their stuff to an audience without a barrier because... Mm -hmm. You know, I think uh, the other thing we take for granted alongside having like, you know, a camera that can shoot video in our pockets at all time is the ability to then hit a button on that same device and instantaneously publish our content to an audience from anywhere at any time. Right. Yeah. It used to be that to get your work seen, you had to have connections or figure out connections or figure out distribution. And that's why 
public access was so huge because you had a platform that was publicly accessible to all. That proved problematic. You know, some communities got rid of their public access because, you know, they weren't comfortable with having a platform sans censorship and things like that. But it was kind of one of the first vestiges along with VHS technology where people could more easily than on film, replicate their movies or their works of video art and distribute them to people. Like those are kind of two linchpin moments in self-distribution that were so, so important that I think now we simultaneously don't know a lot about and don't appreciate just how revolutionary they are because things have changed so much. Yeah. And we do still have public access TV. Luckily, yeah. we our community has um, a couple of different stations yep. that are public access. You know, they do classes. I know they actually have a podcasting they class do. at yeah. one of them, but they also do television and things like that. So we're fortunate that we still have those resources in our community here. And I think a group of people who are very passionate about public access and making sure that that remains in our community, which is very lucky for us. But there's just something about it, you know, watching those kind of like lo-fi normally static camera one or two hosts and then having like every night or every you know weekend evening have something else totally random and new that you're able to see it might be boring it might be like a bible dude or like a preacher or something like that but you might also get something like our beloved horror host here in Dayton Dr. Creep yep you might get you know my dad always watched this like exercise lady who would be on early in the morning which like don't even get me started about that that's kind of weird thing that old men do, I guess. <laughs> but, you know, like just all kinds of random stuff like or cooking shows or the one here that is really of note that I think is just so important is we have a show on our public access called Harper's Bizarro World, mm-hmm. which is hosted by Ms. Demure, a drag performer. Mm-hmm. And she has one of, if not the longest LGBTQ plus issues show on public access oh wow and you know that was a place when she started there were not a lot of spaces in mass media or local media to talk about queer issues and to showcase queer culture and queer joy and all of that but public access was a space for her Mm -hmm. you know and she is still going you know she still does her show and it's awesome and so You know, in that regard, it's important, too. And the Internet, again, has changed that because people are able to carve out spaces for themselves. But pre-Internet, you know, public access was a space for people in communities who weren't getting space in mass media to carve out a little chunk of time for themselves. And clearly, Juliet and I have a pretty high level appreciation for, you know, public access media and things like that. Yeah. Both because of Juliet's career and also because we've worked on this before, you know, making both public access media and low budget media in general. And so when we talk about this movie, you have to keep in mind that Juliet and I have a very high appreciation for both indie horror and also crowdfunded horror. Yeah. So when we're talking about this movie and we're saying that we love it a lot, your indie horror film is not going to be your average blockbuster that you would see in a movie theater. So when we discuss a movie like this and the fact that we have a high appreciation for this, if you're the type of moviegoer that 
only sees films that come to your you know your big amc which is fine if that's the type of accessible media that you want to see you don't have the ability to or maybe you don't want to spend your time that way whatever it is i don't know i don't care you can choose whatever media you take in but also keep in mind that when you're talking about indie horror, you're talking about a person who's really sacrificed a lot of their time. Yeah. They love the genre a lot because how many hundreds of hours goes into making a movie like this? Oh, yeah. And you don't do this to get rich. Right. Exactly. You do it because you love it. And right. You want to tell a story. I mean, $80,000 crowdfunded does not go very far in making a movie like this. Right. You know, that probably covered their cost of maybe some of their production costs. I'm sh- I'm sure that there was probably some out-of-pocket money that went into this. And then distributing for their backers. Yeah. And that's probably as far as it went. So when we say that we love this movie a lot, we also have a really high appreciation for indie horror in general. So if you're not into indie horror or if you don't have an appreciation for it, I would say... If you choose to watch this movie, because I do think this is on the high end of indie horror. Absolutely. Give it some grace. Yeah. Understand that this is a a huge labor of love. Like making a movie is probably one of the biggest unknown labor of loves that you can do. Yeah. Because you have no idea how the public is going to perceive it. And it's going to cost you a lot of money and time. I think an important thing to remember about independent film in general, especially independent horror, is that Every writer, director, creator goes in with a grand vision in their head of what they want their story to be. You know, that's influenced by all of the things we've watched and love, you know, all of these big budget things, these seminal movies. But translating that and creating the effect you want, it doesn't just take talent. It takes money. Mm -hmm. You know, we're in a capitalist society. It takes money. It takes resources. And I don't think it's fair to limit the stories people can tell to the people that have money. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why we have a lack of diversity in cinema. That's why it's just, yeah, don't limit people. Um, And people's access shouldn't be limited by money. I think everyone should have a shot to try to make something and everyone should feel encouraged to go ahead and make something in whatever way they can. Yeah. And there's a the famous Joe Bob rant that happened yes. um, season before last, basically where he just said, make it. Whatever yeah. it is that you want to do, make it. Because you can't wait for somebody to give you permission or give you the cash to do it or whatever. And that's such a great message because every filmmaker who's out there making these big budget movies now, at one point in time, was making films on their iPhone or films on their Super 8 at home, you know, if you're Steven Spielberg or whatever, or making it with your DVR or like whatever, you know, you were making it low budget. You were filming birthday parties. You were filming, from my own personal experience, you were making videos for your German class because you had to make a video that had a German fairy tale in it. And so you had to narrate it in German. And so my friends and I made a whole movie yeah and that's how like we filmed it like that and luckily we had access to a digital video recorder which was nice but every single person who's making a huge movie now at one point in time made that indie film made that tiny little you know film and then showed it to somebody and they and somebody else said hey 
that's pretty cool. Here's a hundred bucks for your next film. Yep. And then you build up. So you can't tell somebody who really put their heart and soul into a movie and ended up making producing a very cool movie because this one, like I said, it cost $80,000, but it looks like a much more expensive film. Yeah, it really does. The effects are great mm-hmm. in this movie. So I just wanted to give a shout out. The practical effects in this are really, oh, they're, really fantastic. Yeah, they're fantastic. The character design, too. For yeah. The three uh, demons. demons, yeah, are just phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, they're truly scary. They're very strange and spooky and eerie. And you've got a lot of really good kills and I've got a lot of good like head smashing and pumpkin smashing and stuff like that. Very, very fun. This movie looks like it cost a lot more money than that 80 grand. And once again, that's reported. I don't know if it actually cost more or less money than that. Who knows? I was making the analogy to Juliet. Paranormal Activity, I think, had a similar budget to this movie. Uh But Paranormal Activity also ended up making like $23 million. Yeah. So people have this unrealistic expectation that you should be able to make a movie with $80,000 that's going to rake in $23 million. Well, guess what? That's not how it works. Right. Also, Jason Blum has tons of... Tons and tons and tons of contacts in Hollywood. Jason Blum used to work for Michael Bay. Exactly. Let's be real here. Like He's great. And I so appreciate his advocacy for the genre. And he has done so much. But the reason he was able to do so much is that he used to work for Michael Bay. Right. He's in the system already. Exactly. He's bringing more people into the system. And that's great. But like, he's massively connected. (laughs) Right. And that goes so far. So... Even if you don't want to spend your time watching indie movies, and I understand that, we all only have a limited amount of time. We have to choose what we spend our time on. You should still try and support as much as you can. Like, if you know somebody is making an indie movie that's close to you and you care about them, toss them $5. Yeah. Because that is going to go so far. And maybe this movie isn't, like, I love The Barn, but let's say in this fictitious example I'm using... Maybe that movie's not going to be great, but maybe two, three movies down the line, they're going to have something really solid. Yeah. And that could, you know, springboard their career. And it all started because you gave them a couple bucks to help. Yeah. The other thing you can definitely do to support indie filmmakers is a lot of people are starting to get their work on to Tubi. Mm-hmm. Shutter is picking up some. They tend to pick up the really higher end indie stuff, but Tubi tends to pick up kind of a level below that. Those clicks do count, Mm -hmm. you know, and Tubi is free. It's ad supported. So that's another way. If you don't have money, you can give your time, you know, try something out that you maybe wouldn't have watched otherwise or didn't know about otherwise. The other thing to do, and this is like super basic, like how to support small business 101 is like people on social, help spread the word, you know, tell a friend, that kind of a thing. If you don't have a lot of time, you don't have a lot of money, there are very easy things you can do to help get the word out about a project and just get it in front of more eyes and ears. Yeah, because, you know, my favorite thing is to listen to people bitch about how there's no new ideas in Hollywood. Uh, And I'm like, well, you want to know how you get new ideas in Hollywood? You support your local filmmakers. You support indie horror film or indie filmmakers in general. You support queer and femme and people of color who are filmmakers. Those are the ways that you get more diversity in storytelling. And we're starting to see the beginning of that. We're not nearly to the point of diversity that we need to get to. But that is how you do it. You support indie. Your Disney Plus subscription is not supporting people of color who are directors. You know, your HBO subscription and things like that, 
those aren't directly helping to diversify film and television mm-hmm. in Hollywood, which we're, you know, we're doing this during the writer's strike. So I think that's even another reason to underscore this is that indie filmmakers are not protected by unions. Right. But indie filmmakers have a tendency to be the ones who are either more equitably paying their kind of cast and crew or it's it's entirely a labor of love from everybody and they're volunteering their time, which I think even makes it more special. Yeah. So those are important notes. Like if you want to see more diversity in Hollywood, if you want to see more diversity in filmmaking, if you want to see more stories like your own told, either start making movies or help support the people who are making those movies. Mm-hmm. That's how you'll see it. I mean, you're not going to get Issa Rae, like you're not going to get more Issa Rae, di- yeah. you know, directors and more black women who are able to tell their stories unless we support those black independent filmmakers now. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I want to talk about on that thread, a little mini guide since we're talking about indie filmmaking. If you are new to independent horror and you're only used to kind of your bigger budgets, your seminal franchises, etc., and you want to dip your toes into indie filmmaking and support some of these creators, let me talk a little bit about kind of how to approach these films. Because I think that a lot of people are very intimidated by how much indie horror is out there and they start to watch them and the viewing experience is so different than what they're used to with your big budget your Blumhouse etc that they kind of don't know how to even judge a movie so I think what you need to look at is what's the story they're trying to tell how well do they tell it how well do they work with what they have And where's the heart? You Mm -hmm. know, that's what it really comes down to for me when I'm watching an indie horror film is, you know, I have watched everything from something like The Barn with a decent indie budget, super well produced, like really beautifully filmed. And I've watched stuff that people have literally made in their backyard for less than $100. Mm -hmm. And they can both be good Mm -hmm. if they have the heart. And it seems like that's a very ephemeral, like weird thing to try to judge. But when it's there, Mm -hmm. you know it. And you can forgive everything about, yeah, this person made this in their backyard. It was their friends in it. They didn't have a lot of money. But if you can see the heart in the film, all of that kind of melts away and you can appreciate it. And it almost becomes like a, wow, despite the fact that they made this in their backyard and they only had their friends this has something to say. It tells a story. You know, they were really in it. This is cool. Or sometimes it's somebody's first film and it's so bad that it's hilarious. Yeah. And there's something to be said about that too. Yeah. You know, like Tommy Wiseau would have never become famous had the room not been so oh, bad. Yeah. And also he put it up in a theater. I think it's the longest running continuous movie that's been in a theater yeah. of all time because we're on 20 years now. that he's paid for he has paid for it to be shown in this theater but it's so bad that it's hilarious and so you want to watch it and there's something to be said about that too to elevate it to a cult status because you're like wow this movie is terrible like to go back to your youtube thing think about all those people who never would have become famous never would have become influencers or actors or whatever it is that they do now had they not posted those really stupid videos on instagram or i mean on youtube And now we have TikTok and it's kind of the same thing. People Mm -hmm. getting astronomically famous for posting really stupid shit. So there's also the other half of that is like 
you might see something that has a lot of heart and you're like, wow, I really love this. You might see something that's so bad that you all you can do is like scream laugh. Yeah, there are those too. Which are great. And both of those things are supporting it. You might also look at genre like, you know, we're talking about horror, but like what type of movies do you like? Do you like ghost stories? Mm -hmm. Do you like haunted house films? Do you like found footage? Found footage can be the easiest way to breach into indie horror because it's easy. It's easy to make a found footage. It's easier to, you know, easier to explain away the graininess or maybe the crappiness of whatever you're recording on. You could say, oh, well, it's found footage. That's why. Yeah. But those are all ways that you can get into it. I would say like Tubi is a great place to start. Mm -hmm. And then if you end up liking it and you want to see more, definitely check out Indiegogo. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people do that. Most of the time they'll have a really good trailer and then you can kind of suss out whether or not you actually like it. See if any of your local theaters have, you know, marathons, because Mm -hmm. a lot of times those places will show local directors get involved with local, you know, cinema in general. I'm never not going to tell people to get involved in local cinema. But yeah, we have a really high appreciation for indie horror. But at the same time, you also should try to do that, too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, is it going to be the same as, you know, uh, Friday the 13th movie or uh, that's not even a good example, but like a franchise movie that's happening right now. Yeah. In terms of skill, technical skill, no, because it's not going to have a major studio behind it. Mm hmm. But by the same token, you're going to have somebody who really has an appreciation for what they're doing. So just trying to give people some grace, you know, especially when they're creators. Like, it's the same with books. Not everybody starts out and knocks it out of the park like Stephen King, you know, and they don't like ascend to these astronomical levels. Mm -hmm. But they started somewhere. Exactly. They started in elementary school writing a story about Captain Underpants or some some shit. I don't know. Well, and like, I don't know. Just because something has a big budget doesn't mean it's telling a great story. I've, yes. I've, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, I've seen and we've talked about, you know, on this podcast, some movies that have had a really big budget that got massive distribution where I'm just like, wow, the storytelling just really, really fall flat for whatever reason, whether mm-hmm. that was the studio meddling or the editing or the actual script. Like, wow, this didn't really work and i know a thousand indie films that can tell a better story than that so oh yeah (laughs) you know we see this on all levels of filmmaking really yeah but there's no better way to help make film better and to help make filmmaking more diverse than to help support indie filmmaking in general yeah i did want to say that the barn goes through well trod territory yes so it's not telling a 100 percent new story it does lean on some some pretty classic tropes, you know, kids getting hopping in a van and going for a, a trip. That's a pretty well-trod yeah. path. You see that in Cabin Fever, you see even the Evil Dead, you know, any number of them. And then having some sort of like terrible fate happen to them. I did get some Hocus Pocus vibes from it because totally. you have, you know, in Hocus Pocus, you have Max who's like, no, we have to stick to this Halloween, you know, legend. Mm-hmm. And everybody else in Salem was like, you're weird. And, and they're all jaded. It's kind of the same in this movie where your main character is like really into the Halloween legend that he's kind of built in this mythology sort of in his head, which is partially drawn from local legend and partially stuff that he made up. And everybody else is like, oh, no, that's not real. Halloween's not real. None of this stuff is real. And then, you know, it ends up actually happening. So is it telling a brand new story? No. 
But I will say that the way that they tell this one is a lot of fun. Yeah, it's almost comforting. Mm -hmm. Like I love from the beginning of the movie, the kind of setup of like, the small town with the legend about the scary thing. And is it real or is it not real? Are the, you know, hyper-religious grown-ups just making up stories to scare kids? Or is there actually something more? Like, we see that in horror films all the time. And the way that they stage it and frame it, rather than it feeling tired and like, oh, I've seen this a thousand times, I felt like, oh, they're going to do this and I want to see how they do it. Like, mm -hmm. to me, it was very comfortable in that way rather than feeling tired. Yeah, and there's something to be said about watching a movie that, like, hits you with all the nostalgic bits of yeah. movies from the 80s. Like, there's a big scene in the roller rink. Mm -hmm. That's where they watch the Dr. Rock show is on TV in the roller rink. There are a lot of nods to some classic horror. Like I mentioned before, Cabin Fever, which is not classic necessarily. I think it has to be 25 years old to be classic, and it's not quite that old. <laughs> Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, those are yeah. classics at this point. Dead Alive, there's a great yeah. lawnmower scene, totally, you know, a nod to Dead Alive, which is a classic. And you have some tropes and some, like, some great urban legends that they play on. Like your candy's poisoned or it has uh -huh. razor blades in it or whatever, which that only happened once and it ended up being the dad that did it. Right. Yeah. So, but you know, your parents always being like, oh, well, we have to check your candy. And the county sheriff always being like, make sure you check your candy before you give it to your kids, even though that never happened. Right. Because they're like, weed, there's going to be weed and crack rocks in your candy. Oh, yeah. The latest one, there was some new one last halloween where they're like oh yeah people are gonna give out edibles and i'm like no one's gonna give their edibles to children like, they're what? so expensive yeah why would you do that yeah <laughs> it's like 40 dollars for five of them there's no way that you're getting that accidentally mixed up with your halloween candy candy itself is expensive enough like <laughs> right? good lord but there's that one this is another great horror movie trope the harbinger yeah. the crazy guy who's like i'm telling you all right now uh -huh. you know um, <laughs> it's real yeah exactly you gotta smash the pumpkins that's the only way to stay safe similar to crazy ed and the friday the 13th franchise uh -huh. so that is kind of comforting to see like that sort of same crest and this guy trying to help you out and tell you about what's going to happen and everybody's like he's crazy and drunk which he was drunk so, yeah. you know, your mileage might vary. Maybe don't listen to <laughs> the drunk person in the horror movie all the time. But sometimes you do have to listen to him. In this case, George was the actual harbinger. I did also want to say that the very first kill in this movie is a kid, which every time I see a movie and the first thing that they do is kill off a kid, I'm just like, them kids aren't safe. Yeah, them no. kids aren't safe. <laughs> but it's funny because that's sort of a... It's just a genre breaker because it used to be that in horror movies, if the kid died, it was like a real big deal. Mm -hmm. People are like, I'm not watching that movie. That kid's dead. I'm not doing it. But now we don't care. Yeah. <laughs> the kids aren't safe. <laughs> the kids are not safe. I did also really love the idea of the neighborhood haunted houses. When I was a kid, we had at the end of our street, this huge house that had a bunch of um, different people who live there kind of like all shared this big house and they would do up this really cool like haunted house in their driveway i was always too scared to do it but it looked cool there's one kind of near to me oh really that does it every year that's cool it's on my way to get coffee so i see when they like set it up 
mm-hmm. you know, when they start to set it up and then they take it down and stuff like that. Yeah. I'll have to check it out. You know, the nostalgia factor for this, it's like for me, and I know I've talked about my mixed feelings about this movie before. One day we will do it. But to me, this summons the same kind of nostalgia or has the nostalgic qualities for me that a lot of people say that Michael Doherty's Trick or Treat, not the real Trick or Treat, uh, has. You know, there are so many people that watch that movie when it came out and they love it because it feels very nostalgic. That's kind of why I love The Barn is Mm -hmm. that it feels like not even real nostalgia because most nostalgia is actually false nostalgia. But it gives me those like nostalgic Halloween of the past, but the sort of mythic past, Mm -hmm. you know, that we all envision, like those of us of a certain age that, you know, had a foot in the 80s or grew up in the 80s. That sort of vision of what pop culture and other things told us Halloween should be, I feel like this movie accomplishes really well for me. Yeah. And the soundtrack is awesome. It's not it's not actual vintage like rock. Yeah. It's made to sound that way, but it does totally have that like vintage rock vibe. They have this cool rockabilly band who plays during the Harvest Hoedown, which you'll absolutely know what I'm talking about when you get there. Yep. The rockabilly band, though, that they have playing is great. They even have a double bass, which I'm always appreciative of <laughs> in a rockabilly band. So, And Rocky Gray did the scoring, and it is such good scoring. Yeah. I feel like the score really, really makes the movie. Yeah, it definitely does. Like... It's very high energy, like there aren't very many slow parts in this movie. It kind of keeps us going, like from the beginning all the way through to the end, and the music is a big part of that. Yeah. So I I really appreciated that. So let's pivot for a second and talk about the one line that had us both simultaneously cracking up and being like, oh man, that's so real, which is when (laughs) Michelle, our sort of um, woman, femme lead next to Nikki, is uh, talking about whether or not her crush likes her and she says i'm not sure if he's flirting with me or if he's just being nice to me yeah i, th- I th- feel like real girl yeah that's such a thing for femme folks i have no idea yeah i can never tell whether or not somebody is actually flirting with me of any gender no yeah because i'm bisexual so i can never tell if anybody is just being nice to me or if they want to like <laughs> flirt with me one time, Juliet and I were out at a show. This was a couple of years ago. I think it was pre-pandemic, actually, because I was still doing keto. I was wearing these, like, shiny leggings, and this girl came up to me and was like, can I feel your leggings? They look so shiny. And I was like, yeah. And I got so nervous. I am an adult. I am an adult <laughs> human. I was, like, 29 at this point, and I'm, like, sweating. <laughs> and afterwards, like, this is not something that happens to me very often, but also I don't go out that much, but it's not something that happens to me very often. Juliet was in the bathroom. She comes back and I'm like, a girl touched my leg. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if she's being nice, if she was just complimenting my pants and she was like, I want to get pants like this, or if she was flirting with me, but she touched my leg. So <laughs> I'm kind of sweating a little bit about it now. <laughs> I remember a similar experience at another show we were at. And funny enough, one of the bands, I think it was the same band oh my God. on both bills. Oh, my God. <laughs> Where um, it was my birthday and the bartender was being really nice. And I was like, is that bartender flirting with me or is he just being nice because y'all told him it was my birthday? <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh my gosh. Clearly this is a, a common theme where Juliet and I don't know how to act around people who are nice to us. We're just like, what do we do? <laughs> if you don't if you don't treat me with complete just no emotion at all, then I don't know how to handle it. <laughs> so yeah. I guess neither of us do. We're like, are you being no. nice or are you flirting? I I can't tell. I think it was the same. I think we were seeing one of the same bands and it was, I think these both happened in like 2019. Yeah. Yep. So I think 2019 was a fraught year for us. <laughs> we were very confused. Yeah. Just, Not to say that we're any less confused now. Probably more so. Yeah. Because <laughs> we haven't been around a lot of people since then. Um, right? Like if that's how we were functioning pre-pandemic, good Lord. <laughs> I can just imagine that if it happens again, like using the bartender example, you just order a drink and then they're really nice to you and you just leave it. Yeah. <laughs> just like walk away. Like, just know. put your money on the bar and just leave the drink. You're like, we have to leave now. There's nothing that can be done. Yeah. There's, this is an unsalvageable situation. I I have a tendency to panic in, in strange situations yeah. anyways. So I can fully see myself like panicking and doing something really weird. Like, can I touch your pants? Uh, I have to go. <laughs> just like noping out. Like, yeah. But we just paid fifteen dollar cover. Don't care. Yeah, gotta go. We have to go. <laughs> gotta go. Uh, you don't have to leave. I'm just gonna go sit in the car for yeah. three hours <laughs> until you're done. <laughs> I have a feeling that that is probably gonna be the a thing that happens again yeah. at some point in my life. I appreciate it when people are nice to me. I just don't understand how to handle it. Yeah. <laughs> that said, the leads are all super likable. Which can be hard in a movie about teenagers. Yeah. Sometimes I don't like any of them. Yeah, exactly. Like, okay, so I read this to Juliet while we were watching it. There was one person which, like, whatever, ignore bad reviews because they suck. But there was one person who was like, oh, all these people are cardboard cutouts and, and they don't, you know, they have no facial expressions or whatever. I disagree. I fully disagree with that. First of all, this is an indie movie. So are you going to get Oscar-worthy performances? Maybe not, but maybe you will. You, mm-hmm. You'll have very convincing, you know, relatable characters. And you get, like, these cool 80s archetype characters in this movie. You have the virginal girl who's a really nice girl. Mm-hmm. You have the girl who's not virginal who shows her boobs. You have the jock who's like, I don't believe in God, but I'm also going to have sex with my girlfriend. You have the nice guy who's also the holder of all the lore. And then you have the black kid who's listening to metal on his Walkman, but he's wearing like a run DMC like jumpsuit Mm -hmm. and cool glasses. Mm -hmm. Would all these people be friends together in real life? Maybe not. Maybe it doesn't seem like realistic, but do these characters seem realistic in general? No. But it's a movie. That's why. It's also like takes place in 1989. And if you've seen a John Hughes film, Mm -hmm. you know that was the sort of pattern of 80s movies. Yep, exactly. You know, similarly, like any of our sort of major 80s franchises, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, a lot of those kids don't seem like they fit together, like they would hang out together normally in a group, but it works. Yeah. It's because you need to have multiple different people, you know, different types of folks that maybe wouldn't come together to be able to do whatever it is that the story tells them to do. Mm-hmm. The whole thing about them being wooden, I would not believe that. I don't think no. that the characters were wooden. I feel like these are indie actors. So give them a little bit of grace. Like I said, maybe not Oscar worthy performances, but there's a lot of heart there. Yeah, totally. And I thought that the acting was good. I never thought like, 
wow, this is the first time they've ever been in front of a camera. Didn't seem like that. No, the performances never took me out of the film. You know, it was just like, okay, this is a movie I'm watching. It's fine. I feel like people who give movies like this really, really bad reviews like that are just people who can't appreciate something that's low budget. Yeah. Or something that's an indie movie. Like they watch way too many Marvel movies. and then Right. Which I think that is going to be a thing like going forward is people trying to rank movies against these huge blockbusters because we've clearly hit the point where there's an equation. There's an equation of exactly the right points to hit in a movie so that people will spend inordinate amounts of cash to see the movie. It's going to break records. Disney has clearly figured out this formula because they're churning out billions of dollars in these movies. But now people are spoiled on these movies. And so their ability, I think in general, I'm not saying everybody, but I think in general, people's ability to enjoy something that's smaller or maybe a little bit, maybe less. I mean, because most movies, to be frank, are going to be less like explosive and big and magical as those movies. Now, having said that, I did see all these Marvel movies. So did I. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we watched them, but I am marveled out. The other danger, I think the precedent that they've set with the Marvel movies very particularly is they've taken the sort of concept of the summer blockbuster and they've moved it throughout the year. Right. And unfortunately, it's it's a double-edged sword because... I think the Marvel movies initially got people at a time when people weren't going to the theater as much, you know, because we have streaming and all of this access to stuff in our homes. The Marvel movies did get people back into the theaters outside of just summer blockbuster season. And so on the one hand, that's a good thing. The problem I'm seeing now, though, is that although I'm seeing some shifts, is that there was a moment there, especially coming out of the pandemic, where it really felt like the only thing people were going to the theater for were the Marvel, you know, like the big, big, the biggest of the big. And really for a hot minute there, the Marvel stuff until Top Gun Maverick came out, Mm -hmm. which all of a sudden like blew everything out of the water and was very exciting for me just because I had seen, I had had this concern with Marvel stuff for a while. And so I was almost relieved to see, yes, another big budget movie, but something else taking that, you know, extreme summer blockbuster seat from Marvel. And again, I've seen all the Marvel movies. I like most of them. You know, I grew up as a comic book kid. So I'm like, you know, there's a glee to it mm-hmm. that I I have every time I see them. You're like, you know, who's going to be in the next one? <laughs> yeah. Or when the logo comes out, there's still a little thrill, yeah. you know. But the good thing, I think, the thing that's really exciting me now is I'm starting to see more people come to the theater for more things. Mm-hmm. And that's been really good. You know, I forget that we are the exception to the rule because mm-hmm. we go to the movies like every week, right. at least once a week, right. sometimes twice a week. But we're starting to see more people also coming to the movies. Yeah, we were spoiled there for a long time. (laughs) Yeah, we were. Well, we were also, I mean, Juliet's partner was also renting out the entire theater, but. Yeah. That was a spoiling point. It (laughs) was. Yeah. But it was because the theater was able to do that. They were able to rent out whole ass houses to us 
because nobody else was seeing anything. Right. Yeah. But yeah. Right after COVID. We also, yeah, we see movies weekly. So. Yeah. But I think the kind of nice thing is like more often than not now, like when we drive to the movie theater, the parking lot is full. Yeah. And that is a relief because there was a hot minute there where it wasn't. No. And that was very worrisome. Taking this back to the indie film thing, I think, again, if you're going to make choices about what you're going to see, if you are able to go to the theater to see things, supporting horror matters and supporting indie horror can be a really, it can make a difference for Mm -hmm. a filmmaker. Fathom does some exclusive horror stuff and more so Regal than Cinemark, which are kind of the two big chains in our area. We have noticed that Regal will occasionally do these like short weekend runs or one day runs of some indie stuff. Mm -hmm. And when you support that, like you are supporting an indie film. So like keep an eye out for those opportunities to see stuff. Like we've caught a couple of things like on a random Sunday that Regal is just hosting like a short, like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday of a hyper indie film, something that later ends up on Tubi or Shudder. And it's cool. We get to see it on the big screen. And that directly is impacting those box office numbers. To tie this back, I'm going to go back to the big budget movie. Um, Barbie actually had the third biggest opening of all time two weekends ago. Mm -hmm. Third only to Avengers Endgame Mm -hmm. and Star Wars The Force Awakens. Mm -hmm. So and those are sequels. You know, those those are movies that are already parts of built in franchises. And I'm talking about Barbie because guess how Greta Gerwig started? Right. Making indie films. So, and Juliet and I both saw the Barbie movie and we freaking loved it. Yes. It was, it was incredible. And it felt like a movie for us. Like yeah. a movie that was made specifically with us in mind. And it was so refreshing to see that. But the only way that that movie got made is years and years ago, Greta Gerwig started as an indie filmmaker. And she mm-hmm. was making movies like you know, really low budget movies. Then she made Lady Bird, which won tons of awards and accolades, kind of shot Sharshi Ronan into, you know, you know, everyday conversation. So just a demonstration of how it's important to support local indie filmmakers, because eventually they might be the next Greta Gerwig. They might be the next Issa Rae, you know, making these huge impactful movies that are for you. And you can see yourself in it let us never forget, James Gunn started in trauma. That's right. That's you right. know, dude is running the DC Cinematic Universe now, made the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, got his start, you know, working on Tromeo and Juliet, working right. with Lloyd Kaufman. Yeah. As indie as you get. All hail our father, Lloyd. <laughs> no, I, I just love trauma. We got the trauma streaming service, by the way. Oh, did you? Yeah, we did. (laughs) Is it great? It's pretty great. It's got all the making ofs. Oh. Which brings joy to my heart. There's babies. Yes. Babies will trip over the first one we watched. (laughs) The babies will trip over the cords. Oh, Uh. my God. I mean, it just goes to show, like, you know, I'm saying this. I have another podcast that's just about and i'm gonna use a moment to plug this one yeah please do it's literally just about one director in the 80s who made the most schlocky insane big budget well big small budget i guess i guess big for an indie movie um andy sedaris it's called hard ticket to sedaris and i freaking love his movies they're absolutely bonkers but i say that with a huge amount of appreciation for these types of movies yeah um 
So please watch the barn, experience it, like it or not, you know, maybe this will be the next step for you in your appreciation of local or indie horror or indie filmmaking in general, and you'll, you know, start your path into helping to support it or maybe seeing more that you wouldn't have otherwise known about. So yeah, um, which it can't ever be bad if you're broadening your horizons, you know, and maybe looking into things that you wouldn't have looked at before. Definitely. The genre is more than big budget. Yes. So next time we are going to go back to an actual 80s movie. Yes. We're going to do something else schlocky. It's tons of fun. I love high school horror. So I'm really excited about this one. I have this like really soft spot for high school 80s horror. We're doing Slaughter High. (laughs) I'm really excited about this one. It's one of my faves. Yeah. Starring the legendary Caroline Monroe in an 80s setting rather than uh, in the 70s with Dracula and Dr. Fibes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. It'll be back to school next time oh yeah that yeah. makes sense okay that's, that's I had... why we're doing that next time god bless you juliet <laughs> always making the theme come through i try <laughs> thanks for listening to attack of the final girls find us online at attack of you can support this podcast and hear bonus episodes at patreon.com slash attack of the final girls we are Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.